We're returning tonight to our mini-series in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where we have uh, the great Apostle John, an elderly believer, in isolation uh, as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. He's away from his beloved congregation at Ephesus, and uh, he's not just surviving it, but he's thriving in it because he has an experience of the Holy Spirit. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that is what uh, we need and can experience even in this lockdown. And when a person is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, or sometimes uh, we say knows the outpouring of the Spirit, uh, then it is not the spirits uh, that they are talking about, but Jesus Christ. The spirit role is to turn the spotlight on our glorious Saviour. And what we've looked at the last two Sunday evenings is the characteristics of this vision of Jesus Christ that John has. And it's symbolic language, uh, but it uh, applies to spiritual realities. And we've looked at it in terms of Christ as king and as priest and as prophets. And we're coming tonight to the effect that this vision has on John. So it's two verses we're going to consider tonight. So verses 17 and 18 in John uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, what's remarkable here is that uh, this great apostle doesn't just have this experience, this vision of Jesus Christ, but it has a profound effect upon him. Uh, he says he falls uh, on the ground as one dead. And then uh, the Lord Jesus uh, lifts him up and speaks words of comforts to him. And whenever a person has an experience of Jesus Christ, it will always have a profound effect on that person. And I just want to ask you uh, at the outset of the message tonight, uh, are you desiring to have a new vision of Jesus? Have you prayed? that the Lord will visit you and will show you something of the glory of Christ. Very good. But are you willing to pay the price for that? Because it will affect you profoundly. It won't just be an ecstatic experience, but it will be most uncomfortable as well. Are you ready 
uh, to be searched by the Holy Spirits? Are you ready uh, to be uh, brought down? Uh, it's not an easy experience uh, to uh, uh, be uh, uh, humbled uh, in dust and ashes, as it were, before God. But this is what God does when he blesses people. So without further ado, let's look at what happens to John here. And the first is this. He is broad low. He is humbled. He uh, puts it uh, so forcefully. I fell down at his feet as one dead. This is the same apostle who in the upper room leaned on Jesus' bosom. He was the one who loved the Lord. He was the closest to him in terms of friendship. He now sees the risen saviour and he's so overwhelmed he falls on his face. This is not an unbeliever convicted of sin. This is not even a young Christian who hasn't come to a full understanding of grace and of justification by faith. This is a mature, godly pastor, preacher, apostle, even uh, one who became known as the apostle of love, uh, who wrote some of uh, the most sublime uh, of the New Testament books. And yet, this vision of the Savior whom he loved humbles him to this extent. Now, you may say, well, maybe this was something uh, that was unique uh, to Revelation uh, because it is uh, an, uh, an allegorical book and it is apocalyptic. But what's interesting here is that it's not just John uh, that is affected in this way. Now, a lot of Revelation is uh, based on uh, the visions that Daniel had. So when Daniel, in chapter 10 of his prophecy, uh, was given a vision of the Son of Man, again, it didn't leave him untouched. This is what Daniel says in verses 8 and 9 of Daniel 10. When I saw this great vision, no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me. I was on my face with my face to the ground. Interesting. And then we had Isaiah in the temple, and Isaiah had been a prophet for some time, and he was one day in the temple and he had this vision of God and Jesus in John says it was the son of God that he saw in the temple. And this is what Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I will say Daniel, Isaiah, they were Old Testament figures isn't there a difference in the New Testament? Well, John is New Testament, uh, but let me give you a New Testament example. Uh, Simon Peter, 
I think this was the first time he met Jesus Christ. And uh, it's in Luke chapter 5. And all we need to know is that uh, Jesus performed a miracle. And Peter's response was to fall down at Jesus' knees and say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, Peter wasn't a shrinking violet. Peter was a hardened fisherman. Uh, Peter was a, a, a dynamic kind of person. And yet, this vision, uh, uh, it wasn't a vision Peter had, the vision John had, the uh, meeting with Jesus of Nazareth that Peter had, had the same effect. And then what about the Apostle Paul? He was still Saul of Tarsus. He was full of rage against the Christians and he was uh, going to persecute them in Damascus, thinking he was serving God in doing that. And suddenly he saw a blinding light and he fell down outside the gates of Damascus. And all he could say, this determined, gifted uh, man, all he could say was, Lord, what will thou have me to do. Have we been humbled? There's a superficiality, is there not, about evangelical Christianity today? We're overly familiar with Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong here. I love the fact that Jesus is the friend of sinners. But we must remember as well that he's the Lord of glory. Warren Wearsby uh, put it well. He said, there is a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies today. Now, we're not thinking here of traditional uh, against modern worship. It can cover both. There is an absence of awe. We are boasting about standing on our own feet instead of breaking and falling at his feet. For years, Wearsby goes on, Evan Roberts prayed, bend me, bend me. And when God answered the great Welsh revival of 1904 resulted. But before being used in that awakening, Evan himself needed to be awakened and God needed to bend him. Now, what is it about Jesus Christ and having a sight, or in the words of Vernon Hyam, having a new vision of Jesus? What is it uh, that causes us to be humbled? Now, I need to say uh, at this stage that when we say uh, that there is a lack of awe, a lack of fear, uh, there is no fear of God. We don't mean by that uh, carnal, craven fear, which is uh, torment. Oh no, people can put that fear on. Uh, I have uh, seen uh, funeral services where people are just chatting and having a nice time outside. They come into the service and there's a deathly silence about them, a serious look on their face. And then they go out of the service and they're breezy 
and chatty afterwards. That, that's not the kind of awe uh, we are thinking of. This is natural. Uh, this is a childlike, spiritual, godly fear, and it doesn't torment. It's painful, yes, but there is a liberty in it as well. So what is it about God that causes uh, this reaction? Well, to state the obvious, he's the creator and we are the creatures. We're not even thinking about the fact that we are fallen, sinful creatures. If the seraphim around the throne in Isaiah's vision, and these were the perfect angels, if they had to cover their faces from beholding the glory of God, then how much more are we to, as it were, be still and silent before such a being? Uh, I like the way Spurgeon puts it, and Spurgeon wasn't a doer person. Uh, he was often uh, told off for having too much humour in his sermons. Uh, so we must understand uh, the context of Spurgeon's words. This is how he puts it. The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord, that they are humbled and filled with holy awe. I can't explain it very well, but it's like this. God is infinite. Oh God, thou bottomless abyss, said one hymnist. He's just so vast, so big. When he draws near, we just feel so small, so insignificant. Job said, after God had humbled him through various trials, what did Job uh, say? I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Thank God we have heard of him with the hearing of the ear. Thank God we are in a more privileged position than the patriarch Job ever was in. Thank God we have the complete canon of scripture. We uh, have all our heritage to draw upon. But woe be to us if it's just the hearing of the ear. If we don't know God just to a degree, so that our head knowledge sinks to our hearts and begins to have an effect upon us. Uh, somebody asked, I think it was um, Augustine, uh, the great theologian of the early church, what are the three main characteristics of a Christian? Do you know what Augustine said? The first characteristic is humility. The second characteristic is humility. And the third characteristic is humility. When we see ourselves in the presence of this great God, that's all we can say. Uh, there's a hymn 
we were going to have it as our first hymn this evening, but there were too many good ones to choose from. This is how the hymnist put it. How shall I sing that majesty whom angels do admire? Let dust in dust and silence lie. Sing, sing, ye heavenly choir. Thousands of thousands sat, stand around thy throne, O God most high. Ten thousand times ten thousand sound thy praises. But who am I? Who am I? What is my house, O Lord? Oh, do you feel like that? We're, we're, we're too self-centred. We're too opinionated. We're too uh, talkative, as it were. Silence becomes the house of God. And I'm not thinking now of a forced quietness. Uh, we can still be talking in the house of God and be worshipping him in awe and in reverence. It's this attitude. Who am I, O oh Lord? Who am I to constantly uh, say what I'm thinking? Who am I to uh, be dictating to you, O oh Lord? Who am I? And then the second reason why this vision of Christ humbled uh, the apostle and will humble us is because it's not just the divine. It's the fact that he's holy and of purer eyes than to look at iniquity. And we are far from holy. I know in Christ we are covered by his righteousness, imputed righteousness. There's no wrath that can take place upon us. Praise God. We're standing on the ground of grace. But we are a work in progress and the Holy Spirit is working his imparted righteousness to us. And that's going to take until we are taken from this world. Only then Will our souls be perfect inherently? And in the meantime, whenever the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see something of the Saviour, because he's the Holy Spirit, there's going to be a conviction of sin. I'm not thinking now about what unbelievers may experience. This is what we as Christians go through. Listen to Isaiah. I think Isaiah... Uh, puts it well. Woe is me, he says. I'm undone. The word for undone is finished. It's over. I'm dead. For I'm a man of unclean lips. The lips is what God uses in a prophet, a holy God's instruments. If the lips are unclean, then the heart is in a worse state. John says, I fell down as one dead. Exactly the same as Isaiah. I'm undone. It's over. It's over. Uh, think of Saul of Tarsus. Here was this man who was so religious, but he didn't have the reality. He was a Pharisee. Uh, he had added hundreds of rules to the word of God, and he actually thought that he'd kept them because he was only thinking of the outside, not the inside. And this is how we put it, Romans 7. I was alive without the law once. I thought I was doing very well, thank you, spiritually. I was proud 
of my achievement. I was alive without the law once, no brokenness. He was spiritually healthy. But when the commandments came, that's conviction of sin, when the Holy Spirit came. Now, this happened to him before he was converted, but it's the same principle. When the Holy Spirit came, sin revived. And I died, he said. I died. And that wasn't the only time he died spiritually. He says in Corinthians, I die daily. The Holy Spirit. And we see ourselves. Maybe there's less outward sin in our lives as we grow in grace. But the Holy Spirit illumines the dark recesses of our hearts. Doesn't that humble you? We sang, didn't we? How shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated being. Have we been humbled? John Elias, as you can gather, one of my favourite preachers, <laughs> 19th century, early 19th century in Wales. He was getting old and there was a new generation of preacher. And somebody asked Elias' opinion of these uh, preachers. And he said, mm, they're very good speakers, very gifted, very uh, eloquent. But there's one thing missing. They don't limp. That's good, isn't it? They hadn't been humbled. They hadn't been broken. They hadn't been wounded. Aren't we too healthy spiritually? Where's the brokenness, the humbleness, the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit? God isn't interested in how much you give. God isn't interested in how much you do. God isn't interested in how much you know. God isn't even interested in how much you feel. The broken hearts he will not despise. Uh, Isaiah, interesting Isaiah, is called the evangelical prophets. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the Lord, the high and lofty one, this is the balance, that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirits of the humble and to revive the hearts of the contrite ones. But before that reviving happens, we have to be humbled. D.L. Moody said, before God can fill a person with his Holy Spirit, he's first got to empty that person. That's what the humbling does. It empties us, empties us of pride, empties us of self-righteousness, empties us of self sufficiency it brings us to that place where we say lord it's over for me spiritually there's no future for me unless you intervene pilgrim's progress the delectable mountains do you know the song of the shepherds i don't know it all off by heart but i do know one line in the song of the shepherds 
and it is this, he that is down need fear no fall. He that is down need fear no fall. Haven't we seen even pastors, uh, both in the States and in this country, fall over these last few years? Uh, the fact that these men are reformed evangelicals hasn't kept them. Why? Well, I don't know why, but could it be this? That it's not just head knowledge, not just gifts, not just success, but it is being humbled that God looks at. So that's the first thing that John experiences here. He's brought down, he's humbled, he falls down as one dead. And then let's hurry to the next effect. And you can see what it is. Uh, it's quite obvious, isn't it? He is lifted up. Now, the way this is described is significant. So let's uh, read uh, the exact words uh, that we have. Uh, this is the way uh, it is put. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He touched him, and I'm sure this is what happened. He lifted him up, and he didn't just lift him up, but he said to him words of comfort, fear not. And he went on to explain why he shouldn't fear. Now, we're not going to have time tonight to look at the explanation. Uh, but what I want to say is this. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter said that, and he'd experienced it. Humble yourselves, continue to humble yourselves in difficult circumstances like isolation. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then notice that he might exalt you in due season. We do the humbling. God does the raising. We don't lift ourselves up. We confess. We lie at his feet. But he, in due time, and that due time is God's time, his perfect timing, he raises us up and speaks. He touches us. He lifts us. And he speaks words of reassurance, words of encouragement. Now, let's just go through some of these things and then we'll be done for tonight. Don't you need reassurance at this time? I do. I wouldn't be human, would I, if I didn't? We all need words of comfort. And sometimes as evangelicals, we, we can be too hard on one another. We need to reassure one another in the Christian life. It's tough. And the best reassurance comes from Jesus Christ. And you know what? Sometimes the Lord Jesus can reassure you through another believer. He can do it in a sermon like this. He, he can do it through a friend. A friend may be led to say something to you that lifts you up. Jesus Christ speaking to you. Uh, I know we sang it in assembly in school and it's been spoilt as a result, but when you look at it uh, independently, this hymn is just awesome. 
Oh, let me hear thee speaking, Lord Jesus, in accents clear and still, above the storms of passion, the murmurs of self-will. Oh, speak to reassure me, to hasten and control. Oh, speak and make me listen, thou guardian of my soul. Peter said after uh, he will lift you up in due season, uh, he said, cast all your cares upon him. Why? For he careth for you. Now, somebody might ask here, if Jesus is using his right hand to touch uh, the apostle and maybe to lift him up, how can he do that and hold the seven stars in his right hand? We haven't come to that yet, uh, but in the vision, we are told that in his right hand, Jesus is holding the seven stars. So how can he still hold the seven stars and touch uh, reassuringly the uh, apostle who is so afraid? Well, it's symbolic language. And this is Christ we're talking about. He's not just holding the church in his hand. The seven stars are representing uh, Christ in the midst of the church. He's holding the whole world in his hand. Isn't there a song? He's got the whole world in his hands but this is the amazing thing from the macro to the micro he's got you in his hand as the psalmist said he thinketh on me i can't imagine that he is the ruler of the universe he's got so much on his mind and yet at the same time he thinketh on me and he even has your very hairs numbered that's his attention to detail Yes, he's holy, he's divine. But he says, fear not, I care for you. You are my child. And especially, and this is so important, when we have an, ex we'll come to this next time, but I need to say now, when we have an experience of being humbled because we're convicted of our sin, what reassures us and raises us up is Christ's word and touch of assurance that our sins have been forgiven. That's what Isaiah experienced. Uh, one of the seraphim took from off the altar, he was in the temple, he took a piece of live coal and he put it on the prophet's lips and he said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. It's this sight of the cross yes we have a vision of jesus in his glory by the holy spirit but it doesn't stop there otherwise we would as it were shrivel and be of no use to god no no he takes us to the cross and we see hanging on that cross the one who has made an end to our sin and it comes with freshness to us because the holy spirit as it were applies the blood of jesus christ we feel that our sins are all forgiven. Evan Roberts, I mentioned at the start, he prayed, bend me, bend me. That was a prayer, really. He prayed for years. And then in one meeting in Blaen and Anerch in Cardiganshire, near Aberporth, he was in a prayer meeting and he felt forced. I shouldn't say forced. He was led powerfully of the spirits to pray that prayer and God did hear 
And this is what's subdued, what melted his hard hearts. Oh, amazing grace. The cross. It was God commending his love which bent me, while I saw nothing in it to commend. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He went on to say, after uh, there was a wave of peace flooding my heart, I felt a blaze with a desire to go through the length and breadth of Wales to tell of the Saviour. I was willing to pay God for doing so. So overwhelmed, overwhelmed by his sin, humbled, but then overwhelmed by the death of the sinner's friend on the cross for him. And that raises one up physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Uh, there, there is a hymn in Welsh which talks about the blood of the cross, Williams Pantacellin. Let me say it in Welsh and then I'll do a very bad translation. Gwaed de Groes in Codivanir Eidil and Gonquerud Maud. The blood of thy cross lifts the weak to be more than conqueror. Gwaed de Groes in Darostun Geuri Cedrin Virdilaud. The blood of thy cross brings down those who are proud. Gardim Dimlo. Ah well, O Galvaria Brin, let me feel a breeze from Calvary's hill. My friends, we need a movement of the spirits, don't we? Uh, we are told there's going to be a heat wave, a mini heat wave, the middle of this week. What, what do you do to cool yourself down in a heat wave? You can try all sorts of things, uh, but... You just need fresh air, don't you? Uh, and only God can send that. And, oh, it's a doldrum spiritually in Wales at the moment. We need a move of the spirits. We can't create that. We need God to breathe fresh life into us. And when that happens, it'll be Christ and the cross that will be talked about, not the spirits. Uh, Cooper uh, this morning, Binney this evening, some of the greatest hymns in the English language. I've already quoted part of Binney's hymn, Eternal Lights. This is what gave Binney the encouragement. There is a way for man to what? To rise to that sublime abode. The gospel doesn't leave us on the ground. The spirits causes us to rise. There's an offering, that's a cross, and a sacrifice. Not just that, a Holy Spirit energies and the living Saviour, an advocate with God. So this is how John is lifted up. We'll look at the detail more next time I'm preaching. But there's one last thing which we need to mention here, because the right hand of Jesus touching John is very significant. Uh, you have in the epistles, the apostles laying hands on those they ordained. Now, the laying on of hands is symbolic of God's blessing. So Jesus Christ here, especially his right hand being laid on John, is showing he is blessing the apostle afresh. 
He'd already been blessed. How many times he'd been blessed? The writer of the Gospel of John. Uh, oh, he had so much experience, but he didn't live on his past experience. He's having a fresh experience here, and it is shown by the Lord touching him with his right hand. And it speaks of encouragement. That's what happens when we're blessed. Isn't that the case? We have an infusion of strength, uh, not our own strength, but supernatural power. This is a paradox. It's when we are weak. That's what the po Apostle Paul learned with thorn in the side. He wanted God to remove it, but God says, no, no, I'm going to leave it there so that you depend upon me. For when you are weak, that's when you are strongest. And Paul had learned that lesson. When I am weak, therefore am I strong. Therefore I will boast in infirmities. Uh, that's what happened to Daniel. He's been humbled. And then verse 10 of Daniel 10, a hand touched me and said, fear not, Daniel. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah didn't lie down on the ground when God said, who will go for us? He'd been changed, he'd been lifted, and he said, here am I, send me, even though he had a well-nigh impossible task. And Peter, Peter said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The Lord didn't say, depart from me. The Lord said, fear not, Peter, from now on. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And as a result of this vision, this humbling, this lifting, John is given the revelation that we have in this book. But it wouldn't have happened unless he'd first been humbled. Do you want to be lifted? Do you want to be raised even to the third heaven? Then you must be ready to be humbled. There is no other way. Let me just end by giving you just a couple of examples from the history of the church. I've given you biblical examples. I've given you Evan Roberts. But let me give you uh, two Americans. The first is A.B. Simpson. Have you heard of A.B. Simpson? Toza has written a lovely biography of him. And he was a converted minister. He preached the gospel very powerfully uh, on the East Coast of the States in the, I think it was the 19th century, maybe the start of the 20th century. No, 19th century. And he, he'd got to a point, he had ill health and he was humbled spiritually. Uh, that's all I need to say. And he went to a conference somewhere. And this is what he says. He now had a conviction. He had discovered a doctrine, but he must have spiritual confirmation or he could not go on. Reason was not enough. Head knowledge wasn't enough. He must meet God and experience the power of the doctrine. The spirit must furnish evidence uh, of this. So one Friday afternoon, he walked out under the open sky painfully, slowly, for he was always weak and out of breath in those days. He thought it was over. He thought his ministry was over. A path into a pine wood invited him like an open door into a cathedral. There on a carpet of soft pine needles with a fallen log for an altar. That's good, isn't it? 
while the wind through the trees played an organ voluntary, he knelt and sought the face of his God. Suddenly the power of Christ came upon him. It seemed as if God himself was beside him, around him, filling all the fragrant sanctuary with the glory of his presence. Every fibre in my soul, he said afterwards, was tingling with a sense of God's presence. And God recommissioned him, recommissioned him to a wider work. And he formed the Christian and Missionary Alliance. The denomination, the Toza, was later called to. And A.B. Simpson, with that experience of the Holy Spirit, had a vision of Christ. Christ visited him and he was used of God. Have you given up? Not literally, but do you think it's over? I'm just so pathetic. I, I can't be of much use to God. Listen, he can bring you to the end of yourself, humble you, so that you can be lifted up. Have you been praying for revival or a personal visitation? Maybe for years now, and you're still praying it, but you're kind of on the verge of giving up. Keep on. Who knows if this is God's way of causing you to despair, even of your prayers so that he may lift you up. One more example. Uh, this is an American missionary uh, who was in India. George Bowen, his name was. And I'm quoting from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Joy Unspeakable. And it's a long quote, but it's worth hearing in full. I think this catches uh, the meaning of what it is to be humbled uh, and then to be raised up. Uh, it doesn't go into enough uh, details theologically, uh, but we're going to look at that uh, in uh, the next sermon. But let's just read this and then I will be done. You're thinking of the Spirit and you suppose that his influence will all correspond with that conception you have formed. You expect him, for instance, to be to you a spirit of consolation. Uh, you understand that he's to lift you into uh, uh, the ambrosial airs of paradise, where poetic visions of the islands of the blessed shall come flashing upon you, upon the right and upon the left. That's what we think. We think we're going to have uh, just a really blessed experience. We're in for a shock. But the spirit is truth, and he must come in his true character or not at all. You have solicited his ministrations, and they are not withheld. But how surprised you are when he takes you by the hand, and you prepare for a rapturous ascent into the Empyrean to find that he has taken you by the hand for the purpose of conducting you down into some deep, dark, dungeon-like chambers of imagery. In vain you shudder and draw back. You only discover thereby what an iron grasp he has. He bids you look upon those hideous images and observes how they body forth the great features of your past life. Uh, so he looks back at spiritual experiences he's had. One abominable statue is named selfishness and its lofty pedestal is completely carved with inscriptions of dates. You look at these dates 
your guide constrains you to. And you are appalled to find that what you regarded as the most beautiful and most consecrated hours of your past life are there, even there. There is a repulsive image called covetousness, and you say boldly, sure, I am that, that not, no dates of mine is there inscribed. Alas, there are many, and some that you thought golden, connecting you with heaven. Anger, wrath, malice, see how the odious monsters seem to wink at you from their seats, as at a well-known comrade. How the picture of your past life is made ugly on their pedestals. He's thinking of his past Christian life now. You have looked unbelief in the face, and frowning tell him that you know him not. Whatever your faults, you have never been an unbeliever. The spirit constrains you to observe that unbelief claims and justly claims the whole of your past life. A profound humiliation and a piercing sorrow possesses your heart. At least you stay standing opposite the image of falsehood. I am not a liar. I hate all falsehood with a perfect hatred. The spirit of God points you to the fatal evidence. You examine the dates and you see that some of them refer even to your seasons of prayer. At length, altogether humbled, dispirited, and conscience-stricken, you acknowledge that here in these damp subterranean galleries and in the midst of these abominable images is your home. You remember with shame the ideas with which you have greeted the spirits, and you fall at his feet, confessing all your folly. There, listen, there does he raise you and lead you into the open air beneath the blessed canopy of heaven, and you find a chariot in which you may unforbidden take your place beside the spirits and visit the places of joy that are above the earth. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he and only he might exalt you in due season. Amen.